That's our Savior. That's our King. I just want for you to picture just for a moment what those disciples had to have felt that day. See, recognize they are probably hiding in the upper room, terrified, tormented by what they had just seen, embarrassed because they had made promises to stick with Jesus, to not run from Jesus, to die with Jesus. But yet Jesus died on that cross alone, despised and rejected. Their best friend for three years, the one that had taught them so many things, had been stripped away from them. See, I just can only imagine what those three years had in store for them. See, three years ago, they were just fishermen. Three years ago, they were just average. They were ordinary men. And Jesus comes to them and says, you fish, but I will make you fishers of men. I'm going to call you into something bigger. I'm going to call you into something better. I've got something better in store for your life than what you could have ever imagined. And if you'll simply put your faith in me and literally follow me, walk with me, be with me, go with me, see what I talk about, see what I do, see the miracles that I perform, listen to my teachings apply my teachings, and then eventually you will teach my teachings. I will change your life forever. For three years, these men walk with Jesus. He teaches them revolutionary things. I just imagine the longer that they were with Jesus, the more they believed him. The more they hung out with him, the more they believed every word, the more they got excited every single time Jesus began to say something. Every time Jesus had to sit down with him and started to do a teaching, I think it just the excitement grew day after day to get closer with Jesus, to apply more of what he was talking about. I believe that they started to recognize that Jesus really was who he says he was, and only he could do what he said he could do. They realized that they were on the cusp of something great. They realized they were on the cusp of something special. See, he also teaches them, though, he's going to die a cruel death. He will be stripped away from them. And even his death still caught them off guard. They still struggled with it. And they're in <laughs> that upper room thinking after the death of Jesus, what is going on? What are we going to do because it just seems like everything moves so fast for them. Because see, that was Friday. But just that Sunday before, Jesus was making his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Jesus was walking into the shouts and praises that he deserved. He was having this greeting that he deserved. The disciples had finally feel like maybe they were on to something. Maybe they had arrived. Maybe some of the hard work was over. And now Jesus is starting to be accepted as the Savior and as the Messiah. And they're going to see Jesus do even more and more things for years to come. But that was not the plan. See, when Jesus even goes into Jerusalem, before he even walks in, he recognizes what's going to happen. He recognizes the people really aren't going to get it. And Luke 19, verses 41 through 42, it says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day that things would make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He's saying, listen, they are missing. They are not going to understand. They're not going to get what I'm coming to do. They wanted him to come and fight against the Romans. They wanted them, he wanted them to lead them out of oppression, out of the Roman authority, but that's not what Jesus had plans for. 
See, Jesus wasn't worried about the earthly life. Jesus was worried about their eternal life. I think that's something for us to remember today. Jesus loves you. Jesus cares about what you're going through. But more than anything else, Jesus cares about where you will spend eternity. See, they missed all of that. They have Palm Sunday, and then the disciples and Jesus go up into the upper room. And they had some great last teachings from Jesus. In the upper room, Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. That's where Judas was revealed as the one who would betray him. And then that's where they had the Lord's Supper, just to name a few things that occurred. And then after the upper room, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is where he would pray for that cup of wrath to be passed on. This is where he was sweating literal drops of blood. And then in that garden, that's where he was arrested, taken away. And he was taken to Caiaphas and then Annas. And then he was tried on false charges. And then he is handed on to Pontius Pilate. Now Pilate knew what was going on. Pilate recognized that this man had done no wrong. Pilate recognized that this man was not guilty. Pilate recognized that this man had no need to die. He did not deserve to die. Pilate recognized this. See, Pilate was not afraid of crucifixions. Pilate was not afraid of executions. He had sent countless to die. He wouldn't even bat an eye about sending a man that deserved death to his death. But on this day, there was a check in his spirit, unlike anything he had ever experienced. On this day, even his wife comes to him and says, you cannot have anything to do with Jesus. He is innocent. She was having dreams about the innocence of Christ. This was so different. This was so rare for Pilate. But he recognized also he simply couldn't let Jesus go free. There were so many things going on that would make it impossible for him, he felt. There was political things going on. He's trying to manage. He's trying to keep everybody happy. He recognized if he let Jesus go, the Jews would revolt. He recognized that if he also crucified an innocent man that would be on his conscience forever so he was trying to do something to kind of make both parties happy and here's what he was hoping he was hoping that if he could beat Jesus beyond recognition if he could simply take Jesus and beat him senseless then maybe just maybe the Jews would be happy maybe just maybe the Jews would be appeased and then Jesus could be let go but in John 19, 12 through 22, we see a different story. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Should I not, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered and hear this. We have no king but Caesar. The Jewish high priest said this. The one that would claim there is no other God but God alone. The number one commandment. The one that the Israelites were told to respect above everything else. And we have no king but Caesar himself. They very well knew that Caesar claimed to be God. But in that moment, their dedication to religion didn't matter. Their motives to get Jesus on the cross was what was on the foremost of their mind. Verse 16. So he delivered him over 
to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is an Aramaic called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote on the inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written, hear this, don't pass over this. It was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather you can write, This man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Do you see the tension here? Do you see that Pilate was trying to release Jesus? Pilate recognized that this man did not deserve to die. In doing so, he felt guilty. He's mocking the Jews out of anger because he recognizes that Jesus did not deserve this death. But the Jews would not let it go. Now, there's not a ton in Scripture about the actual process of crucifixion. And the reason why is because at the time, everyone understood how crucifixion worked. Everybody understood the process of crucifixion at the time. See, back in the day, if you saw a cross, it wasn't a symbol that meant hope and peace and love. It wasn't something that you would wear on your neck. It wasn't something you would hang in your house. It wasn't something that would give you joy. It was truly a peace that showed wrath. It was a thing that showed pain, hurt. It was a penalty for sin. And it was where so many people had gone to die for what they had done wrong. The people at that time were very used to the situation. They had understood what it looked like for a man to go to the cross. Jesus being beaten senseless. Many would say that he was beaten beyond recognition. And then he carries his cross to Golgotha. We even know that he couldn't make it all the way because of how severely he was beaten. That another man had to take it and carry it the last few feet for him. And Jesus is mounted onto this cross. Nails are put in his hands. Nails are put in his feet. And then he is placed high in between two other men. The king of the Jews. Now, at this point, Jesus knows he's dying. Jesus recognizes that this is going to be the end of his earthly ministry. But here's what happens. When you are on a cross, you don't die from the nails. You don't die from the holes in your hands or the holes in your feet. Typically, the way they would die was from all of the torture that they incurred and the place, the, the stature, the posture that they were put in. They would have to press against that nails on their feet, pull up on the nails in their hands in order to open up their diaphragm to get a breath because they would get so much fluid into their lungs over time. They would die of asphyxiation. They were drowning from the inside out. And so they're holding on. They're raising up just to get an inhale and then falling down and exhaling. Now think about this for a moment. Jesus is going through all of this trouble to breathe. Yet, while he's laboring like this, Jesus makes seven statements, seven significant statements, seven last words. 
Here's what's interesting. Everyone in this room, everyone on the planet will one day die. There was a stat released recently. One out of every one person dies. With that being said, something we need to think about is we all have a timer above our head. And last words are significant. Last words are often what people are remembered for. And that is great if you knew you were dying. If you knew you were dying, your last words should be remembered. But if not, they might be just a little bit embarrassing. Elvis Presley's last words. I'm going to go to the bathroom and read. Basketball greats Pistol Pete collapsed during a pickup game. His last words, I feel great. Now, if you know you're dying, you might say something a little bit more profound. Isaac Newton, his last words were so humble, poetic. I don't know what I may seem to the world, but as to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then in finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than the ordinary, while the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Leonardo da Vinci, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. And lastly, one of my favorites, Sir Winston Churchill, I'm simply bored with it all. Last words are significant when you know they're coming. Last intentional words can have a lasting intentional impact. And Jesus made seven intentional statements from that cross. And we're going to unpack those today. The first statement Jesus made from the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. In Luke 23, Jesus is on the cross. He gets lifted up. And upon that cross, one of the very first things that he says, forgive them. Because they don't understand what they're doing. Jesus is looking around and he sees the people that on Sunday, Palm Sunday, were proclaiming his triumphant entry. Calling him Hosanna. Proclaiming he was the Messiah. And then turning around that very next Friday and screaming for his death. Yelling out of the top of their lungs, crucify him. He's looking at the Roman soldiers. He's looking at the Gentiles. And when he says, Father, forgive them, he's talking about them. He's looking at these people and he's saying, Father, forgive the Jews. Father, forgive the Romans. Forgive the Gentiles. Forgive them because they crucified me and they don't even realize what they're doing. They don't understand. There's something we can learn from this. And y'all, I say this often, but I will always say it because it is so important. Jesus understood that lost people act like lost people. Jesus understood that lost people do not act like saved people. And he didn't get angry with them. He didn't get mad at them. Jesus never yelled at them or cursed at them from the cross. He never got angry. His heart broke for them because they didn't understand what they were doing. They didn't understand that they were crucifying their Messiah. They didn't understand that they were killing their Savior. Jesus is on this cross and he's referring to the Father. Father, God, forgive them because they simply don't get it. Church, as Christians, what we have to understand is a lost people act like lost people. And we have to stop getting angry. We have to stop getting 
hateful. We have to stop getting mean with the world. We were called to love the lost people of this world, to show them the love of Jesus. You will never bring anybody to Jesus by acting hateful. You can never bring anybody to Jesus by not acting like Jesus. And when I look at this, how did Jesus handle this situation when they wronged him? He forgave them immediately, recognizing that they did not know what they were doing. He screams out and preaches forgiveness from the very beginning of that cross. See, it's so difficult to forgive lost people. But also, can I say, it's also difficult to forgive saved people. Forgiveness is tough. And hear me, in God's word, Christians are referred to as sheep. We are all a part of one flock following after the master shepherd. But there's something I've learned about being in church for so long. There are carnivorous sheep in the flock. You ever met one? I'm telling you, there are sheep that like to eat other sheep. But here's the thing, they're really not wolves. I believe there are so many sheep that really aren't wolves. They really are safe, but they do not understand that they shouldn't have the appetite of a wolf. For some reason, we got sheep that want to gnaw on other sheep. Do they not understand that you are hurting the same group of people that you are called to love? Hear me. Christ says, forgive what are we supposed to do when people bite us? What are we supposed to do when people disagree with us? What are we supposed to do when people come against us, when people are bitter at us, when people are rude to us? How do we respond? With forgiveness every single time. Don't get even. Get godly. Get like Jesus. Jesus was all about forgiveness even when he's on the cross. Recognize Jesus was not crucified alone. There was a man to his left, a man to his right, and we're really not quite sure what these men did, but we do know that they deserve to be there. See, there was a few differences between them and Jesus. They were on the cross for their crimes. Jesus was there for the crimes of others. They were forced on the cross. Jesus went onto the cross willingly. They were held on the cross by nails. Jesus was held onto the cross by his love, his love for you. Hear this. There were some differences there, but while on the cross, one of the thieves starts to get it. I really think what happens is the thief hears Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they'll do. And then he starts to wonder if he'll forgive the very people that put him on this cross. Maybe, just maybe, he'll forgive me too. See, the next statement we'll see here is going to be in Luke 23. One of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself in us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? Since you were under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Sean translation for a minute. This man hearing Jesus forgiving the people that placed him on the cross. Jesus, I deserve to be up here. I deserve to die this death. I deserve to die and go to hell. I deserve to be humiliated. I deserve to be mocked. I deserve to be beaten because I have done things wrong. I am not good enough to make it to heaven on my own. 
but if you would, would you please let me come with you? Can I follow you where you're going? Will you forgive me? We see a man on the cross that I truly believe got it. He understood that Jesus was who he said he was. And only Jesus could not save his life, but his soul. Could not give him, could not take him off the cross, or would not, but would offer him eternal life. This thief at the very end of his life recognizes this. Something we need to understand. You're never too broken to come to Jesus. You're never too lost to come to Jesus. You were never too old. It's never too late on this side of heaven to come to Jesus. Jesus loves you. Jesus is big enough and powerful enough to save you from your sin. And I don't know if you feel as if you've been counted out, forgotten, written off, or the book has been closed on you because of what you've done or because of what you've gone through. But we serve a God who wants to tell you today that when things feel like they could not get any worse, when it seems like hope is lost and it is over and it is finished, all that really means is there is a new beginning for you. We at IBC are so glad to have each of you here. You have a story, you have a background, you have experiences that I could never imagine. You have had things happen in your life, some so fantastic and other things that you are just dying to forget. You are striving to push away things that you wish you would have never done, things that you wish you would have never think, seen, things that you wish would have never happened to you. Hear me, we serve a Jesus that is big enough to love you through everything you've gone through, every mistake you've made, everything that has happened. Our Jesus wants to love you through it. He offers a new beginning for you. You have stories. Jesus knows your stories, and he offers hope when you're hopeless. He offers faith when you're faithless. Hmm. Some of you walked into this room today thinking you don't fit in. Some of you came into this room today, and you typically aren't the typical church-going person. You might say, church really isn't for me. Can I just go ahead and tell you, we love you. I'm so glad you're here. And listen, at IBC, we are just a bunch of imperfect people trying to follow after a perfect Jesus. We are nothing special. Listen, I am the pastor of this church, and I make so many mistakes. I am by far not the smartest guy in the room. My butter slides off my biscuit often. But hear me when I say this. Oh, man, I'm about to give it to you. Hear me. We just want it take our imperfect selves and follow after the perfect Jesus the best we can. Listen, you don't have to be perfect to belong here. You don't have to be perfect to belong in the family of God. And if you're looking for belonging, you can always find a spot at our table. If you're looking for belonging, understand something bigger. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants you. Jesus forgives you. You can't outrun his love. You can't outrun his grace. And there is no one in this room that is too dirty for Jesus to forgive, for Jesus to cleanse. And you have never lost the love of your Savior. Someone in this room needs to take that home with you today. Mm. We at IBC believe this. It's a place where it is okay to not be okay. This is simply the beginning with you. With Jesus, there is no end. Things are never hopeless. Next statement here we're going to see in John 19. 
The first two statements, Jesus shows his deity, his ability to forgive sin. And then right here, you just see him being fully man. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Now, there's something significant here. Once again, I want for you guys to make sure that you guys get this. Jesus is referring to Mary, the one who gave Jesus the virgin birth that we so often talk about. This woman, I believe, was with Jesus his entire life. I don't believe that Mary gave Jesus much space. I was talking to a mama yesterday, and a mama told me this. She said, I just can't help but think that Mary was with Jesus a lot. We know that Mary was with Jesus at many times throughout his ministry. We know he was there. She was there at the beginning. We know she was there at the end. So here's what's interesting. This mother told me this. She said, with my kids, I would never even miss them being at a baseball game. I would never miss their baseball games even if I knew they weren't playing. If I found out my kid could perform some miracles, you better believe I'd be there. I believe Mary was there. I believe Mary was a part of Jesus' life consistently. She loved her baby. And to think about what Mary went through that day. Mary knows her son from the very beginning. Mamas, hear this. She knows from the very beginning she is giving birth to a sacrifice. She knows from the very beginning she is going to have to bury her baby. Do you see the, the, oh, the depths of her sorrow? This had to be a somber life for those 33 years. She is walking around with her baby, her pride and joy, knowing that she will one day have to bury that baby. Knowing one day that he will be the sacrifice. Knowing one day that he is going to do what no one else can do. That is her baby, but that's also her savior. Oh man, there is some beauty there. And so it's so deep for Mary that Jesus says, John, John, I love you, but take care of my mom. But then I love this. He doesn't just leave it to that. He says, but mom, I need you to take care of John. See, I need you to take care of him because y'all need each other. See, I think there's something for us to learn here. He says, hey, y'all are really different. Y'all are in completely different stages of life. Y'all don't have very much in common, but you two need each other in this time to follow after me, to make much of me. You need to be together. You need to love on one another. I believe that Jesus wants us to bond with people that are different from us. I believe that Jesus wants for us to bond with people that are older than us, bond with people that are younger than us. I don't believe that the church should be full of cliques. I believe we should be unified in the body of Christ. I believe we should be bonded with people that are different colors than us because there is no separation in the kingdom of God. We make much of this IBC. Hear me, we make much that there is no separation I love this here. He says, love each other. Take care of one another. As Christians, we are called not to look down on anybody, but to love everybody as if they were our mother, as if they were our son, as if they were our brother and our sister and our father. We are called to be the family of Christ, the family of God. Hear me, church. We do not take that lightly. We love one another. But then statement four, mm. in Matthew 27, 
And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This prayer is the very heart of the necessity of the cross. Jesus is verbatim, verbatim quoting Psalm 22. Word for word, quoting the Old Testament writer David. And here's what's going on. He recognizes we are held hostage by sin. Mankind was enslaved to sin. And sin planned to kill us and take our souls to hell. And what did Jesus do? He said, you owe a debt because of your sin. I'm going to pay your debt. I'm going to take your guilt and your shame and place it upon me. But because he took our guilt and our shame and our sin on the cross, it literally fell upon him. Your sin and my sin were on the shoulders of Jesus on the cross. And at that moment, the father could not look upon the son. At that moment, Jesus is crying out, my God, my God. Okay, can I give you the Sean's translation? Dad, Daddy, Dad, can you just come and be with me? See, I don't believe that Jesus wanted God to take him off the cross. Because God would have. But God and Jesus knew what had to be done. Jesus just wanted his dad to be with him. Jesus just wanted his dad to comfort him. Jesus just wanted his presence of his dad that had been with him his entire life. See, he had the perfect dad. He had this dad that had never messed up never left him, was always with him. And for the first time, Jesus is alone. Once again, I know that you guys have stories in this room. You guys have hurt. And some of you can imagine an earthly father abandoning you. When you needed him most, he wasn't there. When you really needed his help and his love, he wouldn't or couldn't give it to you. And that's what Jesus is going through. Dad, could you... I wish you could just be with me. Dad, why, why aren't you here with me? Jesus knew the answer. Jesus knew, but he couldn't help but have that desire because he wanted his dad to comfort him. Y'all, have you ever heard the song, I Stand Amazed? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me. A sinner condemned unclean. How could this perfect, loving Jesus love us? A sinner, so broken, so dirty, condemned to death. Why in the world would he love us? We were on death row and he chose to fall in love with us. He couldn't help it. His love overwhelmed him for us. Church. For me, it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will, but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. In that garden, he wasn't sweating because of the pain he was about to endure. He wasn't afraid of the death. He, he was sweating because he was going to be separated from the Father because of your sin. He was going to take that upon his shoulders. That last verse. He took my sin and my sorrows. He made them his very own. 
He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Jesus died completely alone. The Romans were there. The Jews were there. Gentiles were walking by, but that's not what mattered to him. He was alone because the one he wanted to be there wasn't his heavenly father. Why? Because of our sin. Do you see? He did all this knowing exactly what was going to happen, but love motivated him to do it. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Do you recognize what our Jesus did out of love for you? Out of love for you, this is what he did. This next statement is in John 19, and it just shows part of his being fully man, but yet it goes so much deeper when Jesus says, I thirst. And it says here, knowing that all was finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus had went through a lot that day. And so he desired something to quench the thirst, but something significant happened here. If we keep reading, it's not on the screens, but in verse 28, for, after knowing all was finished, to fulfill the scripture, he says, I thirst. 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a, hear me, a hyssop branch. They put the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Significant here in the hyssop branch. See, hyssop was used all throughout the Old Testament. In, in Old Testament rituals, it was usually represented uh, purity. But yet here, there's something else. The very first time hyssop is ever mentioned in the Old Testament. The first time ever mentioned in Scripture is in Exodus 12, at the time of that very first Passover, when the Jews are about to be released, removed, freed from Egyptian rule. But there's one more plague. One more plague, and this plague, oh my goodness, is going to be the death of every firstborn. Every firstborn is going to be killed, and God says, here's how you're going to be protected. And in Exodus 12, he says, Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin. You hear that? A bunch of hyssop. Get a bunch, get a group of hyssop plants. Put it in the blood that is in the basin, the blood from the lambs that they were called to slaughter. And touch the lintel and the doorpost with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house. Until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, he will pass over. The very same tool, the hyssop plant, in the Old Testament, used to spread the blood of the lamb on the doorpost to free them from execution, was the same tool used in the execution of the final lamb, the final savior. Do you recognize that everything about the crucifixion of Jesus was planned out? Every single bit of it. Everything that went 
in this execution. Everything that happened in the life of Jesus was planned. It was intentional. And I believe that God did not make a mistake. It wasn't at random that in Exodus 12, he says, grab a hyssop plant. He could have said, dip your hands in the blood. He could have said, grab something else. He could have said, use a cloth. But he said, grab a hyssop plant plant and wipe that because he knew that one day that would be the very thing that would be presented to his son on the cross. Do you see how scripture goes together? Oh my goodness. And then hmm, statement six in Luke 23, Jesus calling out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. Hmm. See, this wasn't a cry of defeat. It was a cry of victory. It was not the cry of being conquered by death, but of conquering death. Jesus is proclaiming, I am about to give my spirit back to you, into your hands. I commit my spirit. He is conquering death in these statements. See, I love that he's so confident in where he's going. He knows that he will be present with the Father upon being absent from this earth. And here's what I love. He's so confident. Y'all, wouldn't you love for those to be your last words? Lord, I'm coming. Lord, I'm on my way. Make room at the table for me because I'm going to be home for dinner tonight with you. Make room at the foot of your throne because I want to be at the feet of my Savior. Church, I have been blessed and honored to be at many people's bedsides during their last moments of life. And can I tell you some of the sweetest times are when they know they're going and they know where they're going and they're happy to go there. When they're excited to be at the feet of their Savior to see the face of their Jesus. They have confidence in where they're going and they could have confidence in where they're going because of the last and final statement. The last and final statement we see in John 19. Then Jesus, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. When Jesus said, it is finished, it was done. When he said, it is finished, sin was conquered. When Jesus said, it is finished, death would be defeated. Jesus knew what he was saying. When Jesus said, it is finished, it was one word, to die. That very word, to die was used consistently. It was used all the time. But the most profound way that Tetelestai was used was every single time a lamb would be slaughtered. Every single time a lamb would be put to death. They would take this lamb and they would let the blood flow out of the lamb. And when that lamb had bled its last and breathed its last breath, they would recognize that the sacrifice was sufficient. The sacrifice had done the job. The sacrifice was complete. And the priest would say, Tetelestai! It is finished. Jesus proclaims that his sacrifice is done. It was complete. It was over. And in that moment, he gives his life for us. In that moment, in that single word, he gives his life for us. 
Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, obeyed every law, obeyed every commandment. He was perfect on our behalf. But then something crazy happened. In Matthew 27, we see this. And behold, the curtain, the veil of the temple was torn in two. <laughs> Hear this. From top to bottom. And the earth shook and rocks were split. Do you know that Jesus once said, if you don't praise me, the rocks will sing my praises? I believe in that moment they did. They split. See, think about this veil. That veil was used in the temple that veil was used as a symbol of the separation between God and man. And see, God would dwell in the Holy of Holies in this temple. And only the high priest could go in after completing all of these rituals. After obeying all of these rules. It was so complicated. It was so difficult. It was almost unrealistic. And only he could go in and be in the presence of God. But upon the death of Jesus, this veil was torn. Hear me. This veil, it wasn't a curtain like you have in your closet. 60 feet high, 20 feet long, four inches thick. That veil was impossible for humans to rip, and it was torn from what? 60 feet above to bottom. No man could have ripped that from top to bottom. God did something there. God showed that the veil was torn. Separation between us and our Father was no longer but hear me i wonder if there's another meaning here i wonder if there's a little bit of a deeper meaning here that we might miss see in this moment the father is so grieved because he just knew what his son had gone through he was so aware of what his son had to go through for you and it broke daddy's heart every single time in the old testament so often in the old testament we see when they were truly mourning somebody, what would they do? When they were in absolute despair, what would they do? They would rip their cloak from top to bottom. He would rip it out of anguish, out of agony, out of pain because of what he was seeing, out of what he was experiencing what he knew Jesus was going through. And I believe that that also was this moment where their father was so grieved, he tore that veil like the cloak because he recognized what was going on. Do you realize that this was God's worst day and his best day in one day? It was his worst day and his best day. Hear me. I look at this text differently than I ever had because I have a son. I've only had him for eight weeks. And the thought, here's my greatest fear as a dad. Can I just be real? For my son to be able to call out for me, to need me and me not be there. For him to have a need that I can't meet, that kills me. That would break me if I knew my son was dying for the sins of a bunch of people that would be so ungrateful. A bunch of people that wouldn't care. A bunch of people that would flip-flop back and forth with their love for him and their commitment to him. I couldn't do that. But then to know he's on the cross going, Dad, can you be with me? Can you be with me at this time when I'm hurting and I'm so embarrassed and I'm going through all this stuff and the dad goes, son, I can't. Because in that very moment, the son had to become something that he hated. 
His son had to be something so much so that he hated so much that he couldn't even be near him. Think about the anguish of the dad. Think about the anguish of the father. But recognize why he allowed it. Why he went through it. Why did he endure it? Because of his love for you. Jesus endured it because of his love for you. The father endured it because of his love for you. Do not sit in here and think that nobody loves you. Do you recognize what they did for you? Do you recognize what they went through for you? And here's the thing. When Jesus breathed his last, here's what we know. It really wasn't the end. Sin was finished, but it really was just the beginning. See, here's what's going on. Remember, the disciples are in the upper room waiting. It is three days later, and all of a sudden they hear this. Mary Magdalene, y'all, he isn't there. Our Jesus is not in the tomb. John and Peter take off running. John gets there first and he waits and he notices something. He notices something significant. When Peter gets there, he confirms it. In John chapter 20, verse 6, he saw the linen clothes lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Why in the world did John care? Why in the world did John care about how the linens were folded? About how the face cloth was folded up nice and neat away from everything else? There's something we've been missing. There's something we're not paying attention to. John knew something that we're overlooking. Here's, here's what I think. See, at the time, there was a lot of Jewish customs around meals. And the leader of the meal, which was always Jesus, he had done this before. I bet you anything, when they had the Lord's Supper, they did this. In order to convey that the meal was done, they would wad up their face cloth, their napkin that was used to wipe their face, their mouth, their beards, to cover their face when they needed it. And they would take this face cloth and when they were done, they would wad it up saying, I am finished, I am done. I'm not coming back. But if you found the napkin folded neatly on the plate, you know what that meant? That meant do not clean up because I'm coming back. I will return. And we serve a Jesus that is not held by death, sin, in the grave. He returned and one day will return again. That's our King and that's our Savior. I'm about to let you go, but I cannot leave you without this. Our Jesus, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the keeper of creation, the creator of all. He is the architect of the universe and the manager of all times. He always was, he always is, he always will be. Unmoved, unchanged, undefeated, and never alone. He was bruised and brought healing. He was pierced and eased pain. He was persecuted and brought freedom. He was dead and brought life. He is risen and brings power. He reigns and brings peace. The world can't understand him. Armies can't defeat him. Schools can't explain him and the leaders can't ignore him. Herod couldn't kill him. The Pharisees couldn't confuse him and the people couldn't hold him. Nero couldn't crush him. Hitler couldn't silence him. The new age can't replace him and silence, silence can't explain him away. He is light, 
love, longevity, and Lord, He is goodness, kindness, gentleness, and God. He is holy, righteous, mighty, powerful, and pure. His ways are right. His word is eternal. His will is unchanging, and His mind is for us. He is my Redeemer, our Savior, our Guide, and our Peace, our Joy, our Comfort. He is our Lord, and He rules our life. That's our Jesus, and that's our King. Do you realize He died on the cross out of love for you, and He rose into that grave with His power that He offers for you? Y'all, living life without Jesus isn't worth living. Don't you want to have access to the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Listen, in a moment, I'm going to pray. We're going to open up this altar. If you want to pray at the altar, go for it. If you need to talk to myself, Brother Jeremy, or somebody, here's what I'm begging you. I know there are people in this room that you truly don't know where you stand with the Lord. Please have a conversation with us. Please don't go home today without having a conversation. Please don't go to bed tonight without asking somebody who can give you the answers about how you can have good standing with Jesus. I don't care when you do it, where you do it, but do not go to sleep tonight without having a relationship with the Lord. God is softening your heart today. I believe it. Hear me. Do not go to sleep without recognizing where you stand with our Lord of lords and our King of kings. Will you pray with me? Lord, we love you. God, we're so grateful for you. You are the King of kings, the Savior, the Lord of all. You rule our lives. We are so grateful. God, you died on that cross so we didn't have to. You endured our shame so we didn't have to. You busted out of that grave, showing up and showing off because you are God. God, we are so grateful. But God, I ask for you to do something today. God, I pray that you will soften the hearts of those in this room that are far from you. There's people in the room that need relationship with you. These people in the room that recognize that they have never asked you to be Lord and King and ruler of their lives. God, I pray that you will put a fire in their belly that will not stop until they make sure they are in good standing with their Savior. Lord, for the rest of us, God, I pray you encourage us, motivate us to live for you. Lord, we love you. We're so grateful for you. In your name we pray.